One of the delights of meditation practice is the quality of viveka, seclusion. It's one of the one of the good parts when it happens. It's a you know I think when when we tell our friends we're headed off to a, a meditation retreat, you know you can pretty much gauge. You can, you can kind of condition the reactions by which details you choose to include. Uh, well, I'm going to be silent for seven days or six weeks or whatever. What? You're crazy? Yeah. Well, we're going to enter these sublime bliss states, which may or may not exist, but, you know, somebody wrote a book about them 2,500 years ago, so we'll, we'll give that a shot. That's weird. But then if you say that you're going to a converted farm outside Barry, Massachusetts, and you send them a picture, and it's so bucolic and beautiful. They think, oh, that sounds great. Little do they know that you're bringing all of your baggage with you. Not, and it won't fit under the seat in front of you, and it won't fit in your overhead compartment. In fact, tonight's talk is entitled, Who Ordered This Truckload of Dung? And that title comes from Ajahn Brahm, who has a, a book with that, uh, with that title. And it's certainly one that I think we can relate to uh, at any contemplative practice where you know, we're getting quiet and we're secluded from some parts of the world, um, and yet not necessarily secluded in, in another sense, since the suttas use uh, this term viveka, secluded from the hindrances the five hindrances, or if you like making lists, 846 neurotic patterns that uh, interfere with the practice of meditation. And so I, I wanted to uh, give a somewhat different perspective on the five hindrances in the context of a concentration practice, um, and starting with that word viveka, seclusion, um, because it's... It, the, the first jhana is described as the happiness born of seclusion. It um, doesn't specify whether that seclusion means being at a converted farm in Barry and being secluded from Twitter, but it may, uh, it, it, we may infer that it's talking about seclusion from the hindrances because of its context. So I thought it might be nice to do a little bit of reading or for most of you experiencing hearing the sutta Part of me felt, too, that on a jhana retreat, all I want to do is just tell Jataka tales, you know, the stories of the Buddha's past lives, to just kind of mellow out in the evenings. I may still do that one night. <laughs> Some of them aren't so mellow. So we'll do an extended, uh, extended passage from the uh, Samanya Fala Sutta, Dikanakaya number two, which we've uh, already uh, encountered the fruits of the spiritual life. And I'll leave out, we had the context the other night, so I'll leave out the context and just do this, uh, this segment. So the, the Buddha has described the fruits of the spiritual life to a king, um, including how nice it is to live as a, as a bhikkhu, a monk or a bhikkhuni, a nun, and um, 
be respected and have your meals taken care of. And um, sometimes you get coconut curry stew and sometimes you get spaghetti with tofu balls. And that's really great. And then you can practice the precepts, practice sila. And um, in the practicing of the precepts, uh, the following kinds of effects can be said to take place. So endowed with this noble aggregate of moral discipline, this noble restraint over the sense faculties, this noble mindfulness and clear comprehension, and this noble contentment, the bhikkhu resorts to a secluded dwelling, a forest, the foot of a tree, a mountain, a glen, a hillside cave, a cremation ground, a jungle grove, the open air, a heap of straw, a converted farm in Massachusetts. I added the last phrase. After returning from uh, the text I'm using uses male pronouns, sometimes I'll correct them and sometimes I'll, I'll uh, fail to correct them. So I apologize for the times I fail. After returning from his or her arm round, following his meals, he or she sits down, crosses his legs, holds his body erect, and sets up mindfulness before him. So that's a similar phrase that's in the Satipatthana Sutta. Having abandoned covetousness for the world, the meditator dwells with a mind free from covetousness and purifies the mind from covetousness. That's sense desire, Kamachanda. Having abandoned ill will and hatred, the meditator dwells with a benevolent mind, sympathetic for the welfare of all living beings. The meditator purifies the mind from ill will and hatred. Having abandoned dullness and drowsiness, Tina Meda, sloth and torpor, the meditator dwells perceiving light, mindful, and clearly comprehending, and purifies the mind from dullness and drowsiness. Having abandoned restlessness and worry, the meditator dwells at ease within oneself, within himself with a peaceful mind and purifies the mind from restlessness and worry. Having abandoned doubt, the meditator dwells as one who has passed beyond doubt, unperplexed about wholesome states. Uh, the meditator purifies the mind from doubt. Great king, Suppose a man were to take it alone and apply it to his business and, have, and his business were to succeed so that he could pay back his old debts and would have enough money left over to maintain a family. He would reflect on this and as a result would become glad and experience joy. Again, great king, suppose a man were to become sick, afflicted, gravely ill, so that he could not enjoy his food and his strength would decline. After some time, he would recover from that illness and would enjoy his food and regain his bodily strength. He would reflect on this and as a result would become glad and experience joy. Again, great king, suppose a man were locked up in a prison. After some time, he would be released from prison, safe and secure, with no loss of his possessions. He would reflect on this and as a result would become glad and experience joy. Again, great king, suppose a man were a slave without independence, subservient to others, unable to go where he wants. After some time, he would be released from slavery and gain his independence. He would no longer be subservient to others, but a free man able to go where he wants. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. Again, great king, suppose a man with wealth and possessions was traveling along a desert road where food was scarce and dangers were many. After some time, he would cross over the desert and arrive safely at a village which is safe and free from danger. He would reflect on this, 
and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. In the same way, great king, when a bhikkhu sees that these five hindrances are unabandoned uh, within the mind, the bhikkhu regards that as a debt, a sickness, a confinement in prison, as slavery, as a desert road. But when the meditator sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned, then the bhikkhu regards that as freedom from debt, as good health, as release from prison, as freedom from slavery, as a place of safety. When he or she sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned, gladness arises. When he or she is gladdened, rapture arises. When his or her mind is filled with rapture, the body becomes tranquil. Tranquil in body, he or she experiences happiness. Being happy, the mind becomes concentrated. Quite secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, he or she enters and dwells in the first jhana, which is accompanied by applied and sustained thought and filled with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, viveka. He drenches, steeps, saturates, and suffuses his body with this rapture, piti, and happiness, sukha, born of seclusion, so that there is no part of the entire body which is not suffused by this piti and sukha. Great king, suppose a skilled bath attendant or his apprentice were to pour soap powder into a metal basin, sprinkle it with water, and knead it into a ball, so that the ball of soap powder were pervaded by moisture, encompassed by moisture, suffused by moisture inside and out, and would not trickle. In the same way, great king, the bhikkhu drenches, steeps, saturates, and suffuses the body with the rapture and happiness born of seclusion, so that there is no part of his entire body which is not suffused by this piti and sukha. This great king is a visible fruit of the spiritual life, more excellent and sublime than the previous ones. Hopefully this sounds familiar. Further, great king, with the subsiding of vitaka and vichara thought, the bhikkhu enters and dwells in the second jhana, which is accompanied by internal confidence and unification of mind, is without applied and sustained thought, and is filled with the rapture and happiness born of concentration, samadhi. He or she drenches, steeps, saturates, and suffuses the body with this rapture and happiness born of samadhi, so that there is no part of the entire body which is not suffused by this piti and sukha. Great king, suppose there were a deep lake whose waters welled up from below. It would have no inlet for water from the east, west, north, or south, nor would it be refilled from time to time with showers of rain. Yet a current of cool water welling up from within the lake would drench, steep, saturate, and suffuse the whole lake so that there would be no part of that entire lake which is not suffused with the cool water. In the same way, great king, the bhikkhu drenches, steeps, saturates, and suffuses the body with the piti and sukha born of concentration, so that there is no part of the entire body which is not suffused by this piti and sukha. This too, great king, is a visible fruit of the spiritual life, more excellent and sublime than the previous ones. Further, great king, with the fading away of rapture, the bhikkhu dwells in equanimity, mindful and clearly comprehending, and experiences happiness with the body. Thus, he or she enters and dwells in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare he dwells happily with equanimity and mindfulness. He or she drenches, steeps, saturates, and suffuses the body with this happiness free from piti, free from rapture, so that there is no part of the entire body which is not suffused by this sukha, this happiness. 
Great King, suppose in a lotus pond there were blue, white, or red lotuses that have been born in the water, grow in the water, and never rise up above the water, but flourish immersed in the water. From their tips to their roots, they would be drenched, steeped, saturated, and suffused with cool water, so that there would be no part of those lotuses not suffused with cool water. In the same way, great king, the bhikkhu drenches, steeps, saturates, and suffuses the body with the happiness free from rapture, so that there is no part of the entire body not suffused by this happiness. This too, great king, is a visible fruit of the spiritual life, more excellent and sublime than the, pre than the previous ones. Further, great king, with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, and with the previous passing away of joy and grief, the bhikkhu enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, which is neither pleasant nor painful, and contains mindfulness pu fully purified by equanimity. Here she sits, suffusing the body with a pure, bright mind, so that there is no part of the entire body not suffused by a pure, bright mind. Great King, suppose a man were to be sitting covered from the head down by a white cloth, so that there would be no part of his entire body not suffused by the white cloth. In the same way, Great King, the bhikkhu sits suffusing the body with a pure, bright mind, so that there is no part of the entire body not suffused by a pure, bright mind. This too, Great King, is a visible fruit of the spiritual life, more excellent and sublime than the previous ones. With his or her mind thus concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, he or she directs and inclines it to knowledge and, vis and vision. He understands thus, this is my body, having material form, composed of the four primary elements, originating from father and mother, built up out of rice and gruel, and tofu balls, impermanent, subject to rubbing and pressing, to solution, dissolution and dispersion. And this is my consciousness, supported by it and bound up with it. Great King, suppose there were a beautiful barrel gem of purest water, eight-faceted, well-cut, clear, limpid, flawless, endowed with all excellent qualities. And through it, there would run a blue, yellow, red, white, or brown thread. A person with keen sight, taking it in his hand, would reflect on it thus. This is a beautiful barrel gem of purest water, purest crystal, eight-faceted, well-cut, clear, limpid, flawless, endowed with all excellent qualities. And running through it, there is, this there is this blue, yellow, red, white, or brown thread. In the same way, great king, when the mind is thus concentrated, pure and bright, unblemished, free from defects, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attuned to imperturbability, the bhikkhu directs and inclines it to knowledge and vision, and understands thus. This is my body having material form, and this is my consciousness supported by it and bound up with it. This too, great king, is a visible fruit of the spiritual life, more excellent and sublime than the previous ones. So we can see the place of the jhana practice, the practice of cultivating these four states, clearly within the path, this particular developmental path. There's a lot of discussion of the perfection of sila, and then there's this discussion of abandoning the five hindrances, and then the cultivation of the four jhanas, and then turning to knowing and seeing, to, to insight practice. It's kind of a tricky thing, because on the one hand, the jhanas suppress the hindrances, right? They don't uproot them forever, but during the time you're in the jhana, the hindrances are suppressed, but you have to abandon them first in order to get there. 
Um, so it's not a magic, the, the magic jhana pill, as you've observed. On the contrary, I think the, the way that the sutta is, is uh, ordered suggests that it's the abandoning of the hindrances that brings about the joy that then leads to first jhana. So as we've been talking uh, about that entry point, um, you know, the mind gets concentrated, gets to access concentration. That's basically the mind is free from hindrances because it's able to, st to stay easily on the object. It's not getting pulled or pushed by sense desire and ill will and restlessness and sleepiness and skeptical doubt. It's able to just do it, do the practice. And then the instruction has been to look for the pamoja, for the gladness, wherever you find it. So sometimes that gladness will be seemingly unrelated to the abandoning of the hindrances. So there might be, if you're smiling, for example, there could be happiness arising. And you just turn the attention to that gladness, to that gladness, and then, then the, the process unfolds. Rapture arises and so on. It's also possible to have the abandoning of the hindrances themselves as, the, um, as that kind of a trigger. So notice that in the transition paragraph, which is that fractal paragraph, that has the entry to the jhanas as reflecting the jhanas themselves. So the language is, when he or she sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned, gladness arises, pamoja arises. When he's gladdened, rapture arises, right? From the pleasant, we go to the piti. When the mind is filled with the rapture, the body becomes tranquil, right? Tranquil in body, uh, he experiences happiness, sukha. Being happy, the mind becomes concentrated. So that paragraph has two ways of being read. One is it's a sort of uh, condensation of the jhanas. And the other is that's the gateway to the jhanas. So you go through all of these processes and access concentration just in regular mind and then enter into the jhanas. And I think both are, both are possible uh, to experience in your actual experience. So it's not that one is one reading is right or the other, uh, and the other is wrong. But it is interesting to think about the gladness as arising directly from the abandonment of the hindrances. And it's uh, been interesting, you know, in interviews sometimes, there's a sense of like, well, you have to go looking for where that happiness is. Um, but it's interesting to see how the sutta aligns the five hindrances with various kinds of joy that result when they're abandoned. Right, so uh, sens sensual desire, covetousness for the world is applied to like you have this loan out and you can pay off your loan. Um, which is helpful, sometimes on meditation retreats I'll use um, thinking about your mortgage as an example of just the mind becoming distracted. But clearly the Buddha had that in mind as well. It's, you know, it's not quite a fixed rate 30 year mortgage but it's a loan for a business uh, that then gets paid off and that's sort of an, an interesting analogy for having like sense desire, like you're constantly having to kind of pay it off in a way. It's like you go from desire to desire to desire. And there's a bit of a, I'll say more about this a little bit, but you know, there's a bit of a monastic um, side, a renunciate side to all of these that, you know, for householders, which, which all of us are, you know, may or may not fully align with our our humanist values or our Western values or just our preferences um, or our karma. But just seeing it for itself, I think that is something we can relate to. Like going from desire to desire to desire, that debt is never, is never paid up until the desire is itself relinquished. 
right back to that donkey and the carrot thing. It's always going for another bite until we sort of set down the burden. And training in a temporary way doing that right, is, is sort of a micro-training for doing it on a macro level. So likewise, uh, ill will is analogized here to being ill, uh, which just jump, jumped out at me as I was kind of looking over the notes for this talk tonight. Um, I don't usually think of, you know, ill has multiple meanings in the English language, and when we say ill will, it means like wishing ill on another person, like ill, like bad, right? But it's a nice pun, if nothing else, that it's also kind of an illness in a way, um, that we're sick with this kind of, kind of uh, ill will. And then there's joy upon healing. Probably some of you know that um, somewhat famous little essay by Thich Nhat Hanh that um, you know, when we have a toothache for a while, it's really hurting, and then it goes away, we feel a lot of joy um, at the toothache is, is now gone, but how many of us woke up this morning happy not to have a toothache? Right? We kind of take for granted the, uh, the base level of when things aren't broken. Um, it's funny, when I first heard that story, I thought it was like another guilt trip like, what, do I have to wake up in the morning and be grateful for everything that's not wrong? I have to, like, endlessly be grateful? Can't I just fetch about the things that are wrong? Oh, but this is similar, right? I think this is similar. Then. And the feeling, it's interesting in, in the pre-jhana part of meditation, so when you're just, you know, calming down, purification of mind. So, you know, maybe attend to that a little bit. You know, you can leave the, leave the concentration object for a minute. And if you notice a bunch of ill will present, and you're sitting with it, and then once it drifts off, and this is true for any of the hindrances, once it drifts off, wow, that felt good, right? I mean, there's that joy, that gladness that arises just from being free of the hindrance, in this case, free of ill will. And I'll, I'll say a little more about each of the five in just a minute. And then, right, so the, uh, the analogy of sloth and torpor uh, is like you're, it's like you're in prison. You just can't, you can't move, or you can't really do anything. Uh, and then you get out, and all of a sudden it's you again. It's funny, I've really worked with that a lot over the years, for me, uh, off the cushion more than on the cushion. Uh, I've just noticed that a, just a, more than half the time, probably more like three quarters of the time, you know, when there's sadness arising, and not just sadness, you know, that feels good and wholesome sadness, but just, you know, kind of a like low-level grayish depression-y kind of uh, sadness. Now I know the first thing is to like see if I'm actually tired, you know. What's that? Uh, halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, right? Is that what it is? Uh, so the halt meeting, that's when you don't send the email. Um, and when, the, when the, some of those are present, it's kind of the modern-day version of the five hindrances. I like it when I'm feeling all four at once. Hung, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. It's, it's a, that's a fun one. Um, and, and it's so, you know, as, as we'll see more in a second, you know, it's not sloth and torpor or laziness and, and uh, drowsiness, not just in the physical sense, but also in the sense of, uh, you know, it's another great Yiddish word, schwach. I'm feeling schwach. Do I even need to translate what that means? It's like, how are you feeling? Schwach. It's like, uh, you know, uh, that, yeah, I'm not even going to translate it. I don't even know what the translation is. I'd be making it up. Um, 
and then the uh, restlessness, uh, restlessness and worry, you're doing a lot of things, but not under your own agency, right? This is where you're imagined to be a slave. And so you're constantly having to do stuff, right? But it's not under your control uh, or, your, or your own agency. And so what is it when you actually, you know, in the moment, you know, so minute 26 of the 45, first 45 minutes sit when magically the restlessness somehow disappears? Um, maybe because of effort that you've put in, or maybe it just goes. There's that, there is that sense of joy from the arising of the hindrance, and that joy can be the joy you, that you then attend to um, and use as the, as the next object of, a, of concentration that then leads to piti, that le then leads to the jhana. Then finally, I like the, um, the analogizing of... Uh, skeptical doubt to wandering across a desert road where there's food is scarce and dangers are many, that you can be kind of assailed at, at any time. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, of good Buddhist writing about skeptical doubt, I think, and it is kind of like that. It just kind of attacks at some weird moment. And um, you're not even aware with all of these hindrances, but especially with, with skeptical doubt, we're not even aware that we're in it. Um, Invariably, the times when I really do not feel like meditating are the times where I probably most need to sit. <laughs> but it's but we're not aware that um, we're not aware that that hindrance is present. And so it's it's this interesting stage process that the joy arises from reflecting that the hindrance is no longer present. So it's not even looking for an external prompt necessarily, right? It's not that it's a beautiful day or that uh, the, the chocolate was especially good. And all of those things can lead to a lot of joy. And you can absolutely use those kinds of sense joys, sense pleasures as a gateway into building lots of more joy. But it's interesting here that just the, the negative realization of freedom from hindrance itself has a positive uh, capacity. So, if you've noticed that particular bit in Deacon Nikaya number two is a little short on practical advice, right? So, okay, you've, you've been working on your sila, that's good. And then you go off to a secluded place. So you've got some viveka on the, on the physical level. And then, I mean, the next lines, it's a little frustrating, right? It's just like, okay, I've, sits, I've sat down, I've crossed my legs, okay, held the body erect and I've set up mindfulness before me, whatever that means, in front of me, or in the front of the body, or as my main, main thing I'm doing. Probably many of you have heard Joseph Goldstein do a, a day-long talk just on that phrase. Um, okay, I've set up mindfulness in front of me, and then having abandoned covetousness for the world. That's it, I'm done? Right? There's like a missing, right? It's that, does, that, does that comport with your experience? Not mine, right? Like, all I have to do is you know, virtuous conduct, viveka, seclusion, and then the hindrances are gone. Well, that's like that, you know, when you send the picture of, uh, you know, BCBS in the snow and everyone thinks you must be really, really relaxed because you're in such a beautiful location. It's funny, earlier in my um, meditating life, you know, when uh, I had a job with limited amounts of vacation and, you know, we all have to budget out time being away from family or being away from professional work and and um, 
for a family, kind of family obligation, we went, I think it was celebrating my mother's 70th birthday, something like that. We uh, went down, we asked her, you know, what does she want? And she wanted to be with us, but it, at a resort, you know, at some fun resort. Um, and so we did, we went down to Puerto Rico to the fancy resort and um, it was a week and she was very happy and it felt good to me. I, I, you know, I was being a dutiful son, so I felt, I felt good going to a five-star resort in Puerto Rico, really real sacrifice. Um, but it was interesting that, you know, I actually spent a lot of the time like really not so happy, not in a like really unhappy, but like I were paying all this money and the food was lousy and there were all these people around and I was supposed to have a good time, but I wasn't actually doing the things that enable me to have a good time. Instead, I was like eating this lousy food and like, sure, it was night, you know, it was great to be out in the sun and all those things. And I, I, I did really reflect on how, what a weirdo I was that I would have preferred to be, you know, at some cold retreat center in Massachusetts for a week, not talking, um, because that would, that would allow, that would allow the cultivation of the skills that allow the hindrances to subside. Lately, I've just tried to do both. You know, maybe we'll have our next retreat in Puerto Rico. <laughs> and we can just, uh, right, we can get into a nice access concentration and then sit out in the sun. That sounds pretty awesome. Um, but that was a really nice illustration for me of just what vacation means, you know, what the joy is when the hindrance goes away. And obviously, the general idea is capitalism is that if we have the right, we arrange the conditions for our happiness and purchase enough conditions, then happiness will arise. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, the conditions for happiness are mostly internal rather than external. So we purchased all of these condition for happy, for conditions for happiness. And uh, it occurred to me even back on that vacation that my, my mother had a clearer idea of her intention for that week uh, than I did. It wasn't go on a, to a beautiful resort on her own, right? It was go to a beautiful resort with her family, right? That's what she, she had her priorities straight. You know, I was the one who uh, thought that going to a beautiful resort means you, you only get to have beautiful experiences because everything's taken care of for you. So I think there, there is something really, I, I'm a big fan, people who know me or know my work outside of my meditation life, you know, I, I, I like a lot of sense desires. I'm a greed type, you know, in the Buddhist psychology, we all incline more toward greed or aversion or to delusion. And there's no doubt at all that I'm a greed type. And, you know, I have like three careers and, you know, whatever. I do a lot of things. Um, and yet there is that, there is that also truth that it's the, it's the abandonment of the hindrance that brings about this joy. And I remember I used to tie myself in knots about that. I spent a lot of early Buddhist retreats with a lot of skeptical doubt because this all seemed so world-hating and monastic and all that stuff. And back then in my, in my practice life, I also hadn't had a lot of exposure either to Mahayana or Vajrayana practices, which are more, tend to be, because of the development of Mahayana and Vajrayana, less oriented toward the monastic forms of practice specifically. And so I thought this was Buddhism and I had all this doubt and that was a waste of time. And, but Sharon Salzberg one time said a really nice, kind of, at the end of a retreat, six week retreat, she said, um, you know, it's not that the expectation is that all, everyone here is just gonna go renounce completely, right? But could we just lean back a little? I think that's a really useful image. It goes a bit back to the donkeys and carrots thing. 
So the sutta does, so it's, it has this nice idea that the abandonment of the hindrances leads to joy, but again, it's a little bit short on instruction of how that actually happens. Um, so we look elsewhere in some of the suttas, and, and that's what I'll spend kind of the rest of, of our time on. So one of the, I think, most useful descriptions of how this all works, like how to do it, uh, is in the Satipatthana Sutta, where the Buddha is talking about mindfulness of uh, mental qualities and ask how does a meditator or monk remain focused on mental qualities in and of themselves. And so the Buddha gives the following case, where a monk remains focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the five hindrances. How does a monk remain focused on mental qualities in and of themselves with reference to the five hindrances? So there's the case where there being sensual desire present within, the meditator discerns that there is sensual desire present within me or there being no sensual desire present within me, the meditator discerns that there is no sensual desire present within me. The meditator discerns how there is the arising of unarisen sensual desire, and discerns how there is, there is the abandoning of sense desire once it has arisen. And the meditator discerns how there is no future arising of sensual desire that has been a fully abandoned. That one's kind of a hard one, because it only comes you know, with various stages of liberation. And that same formula is repeated for all of the hindrances, Ill, so ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and uh, worry, and uh, skeptical doubt. So there were four realizations in there. Um, I noted that the Buddha left out the part about feeling really crappy about yourself for having uh, a hindrance arise. I'm surprised by that, since that's my most common reaction. So, you know, so there is the case where there being sense desire present within me, the monk discerns that I am a very bad meditator because there is sense desire present within me. That line does not occur. And that I think is really important, right? That it's a very transparent, this mindfulness uh, is very transparent and just is what's present and what's not present. So is there sense desire present? Sure. Or not. And there is a normative element. It's not just purely descriptive. There is a normative element because the idea is you see how it comes up and you see how it goes away. So if you're trying to meditate and you're, and you're working on a, on a retreat, you know, you, you, you sort of do the conditions that help the thing not come up, right? So it's like when the, the it's another Jewish joke, the, the guy goes to the doctor and says, doctor, it hurts when I do this. So the doctor says, don't do that. So likewise here, it's, it's not that it's a, a guilt trip about I'm feeling ill will or I'm feeling restless, but there, there can be an analytical, an analytical approach to, oh, well, I, yeah, I, I took this little bait on this thought and now I'm, now I'm filled with restlessness and worry. Sometimes it's not possible to see what the conditions are that lead to the arising of the sense. Sometimes it just seems like it comes out of nowhere. Um, on another retreat, I remember sitting and, and literally every day, it's so about an hour after lunch, so I was in a, a long sit after lunch. So first, I, so I'd first get really sleepy. I would actually take like a, a very short nap after lunch, and then wake up, and this incredible ball of energy would just arise, and it was this like ball of restlessness energy, and it just was kind of it was, God, it was just unendurable. I mean, I it just I tried everything. I threw all the antidotes at it. wasn't doing anything, and. Um, you know, but finally seeing it as like, oh, here it is, here's the energy again, here's this thing again. Um, again and again and again every day for, for months, 
Uh, you know, it's like, at least it wasn't a surprise. Right. And uh, it was kind of that, that uninvited house guest uh, that comes, right? Another metaphor for difficult mind states. They're like the house guests who you didn't even invite, but here they are. Um, just knowing that it's there. All right, that's what this is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so just seeing clearly and knowing the object for what it is, not the story of what it is, not a justification for what it is, like that story about anger before. And so there's that seeing clearly, and there's also the cultivation of the attitude of, of, settling, of settling back in the way in which it's noted. So just developing that metacognition that, oh, okay, so um, ill will is present. Mm -hmm. So what's happening in that moment is actually kind of elegant, right? So there's the stepping back from the, the hindrance itself, right? That's like, that's metacognition, right? And there's the training of the mind in each of those moments to be able to kind of keep doing that. And kind of keep doing that. Oh, okay, yeah, ill will is here. Now, it's not like we're just great, that's fine, I'm just going to sit here with ill will, but just that, just that awareness, right? And so I think it's always the first, um, that's always kind of the first line of approach, I think, when, when the hindrance is, can you just sit, can you just be with it and wait it out? If you're doing, Vince, uh, if you're doing Vipassana, doing insight practice, um, you know, looking at it, knowing its nature, seeing how it changes, um, you know, with concentration practice, it might be a little bit different. You might sort of make a quick note that it's there, but then come back to the primary object. So we're not working directly with the hindrance necessarily. Um, but in that moment, we're just we're aware that it's there. Right, the hindrance is present, and maybe we'll go to antidotes. But maybe we'll just be aware that it's there, and if we're able to stay on the primary object or not. Um, yeah, that mindfulness also has that that causal element, the cause and effect element um, that so it's actually doing insight practice by using the hindrance as the subject of the insight practice and it's kind of a depersonalization non-self piece the conditions were present the hindrance arose and likewise the characteristic of anicca impermanence before it wasn't there now it is then it's not now it is and of course dukkha right because we all want to get to that uh sublime joy that we just read about a few sentences earlier, and yet here we are instead sitting with, uh, you know, restlessness. Um, so there's dukkha. So all of the three characteristics are right there in the hindrance. And even if we don't spend our whole sit working in, a, in an insight meditation -y way with it, you know, there's that moment of recognition. And it's always, um, you know, with all of these hindrances in a concentration retreat, it's always that kind of wise decision between, you know, what do I do with this? So I could kind of keep soldiering on with my main concentration practice, or that's not just not working. I need to take the hindrance as object and go over there and either do some insight practice or at least make it the object because it's taking too much of my attention. It's not possible, right? Or third, look for the antidote, right? Which we'll turn to in just a second. And so it's always, it's, fun, it's funny, I get it a lot of times when I'm teaching on, on insight retreats, you know, the following question, which is, well, how long should I stay with the, you know, the knee pain before I, you know, before I move? And it's always the same answer, because there's no one answer, right? So you stay with it until it's just totally not helpful that you're not, you're not learning anymore, and you're just gritting your teeth, and you're not, it's just not possible, and you're not doing anything. 
So you work with it with the knee pain. You take the knee pain as object. You break apart the knee pain. You you see the see the uh, the ill will around the knee pain, the aversion, because nobody wants knee pain. And so you do that, and you do that, and you do that, and you do that. And then ten minutes pass, and you're still doing that. And at a certain point, you're just you're really not actually making any more progress. You're not you're not gaining any more spaciousness around it. You're not um, you know. And then so might be time to look for the antidote, whether that's actually moving or whether it's doing a bunch of metta for yourself or whatever right but at a certain point the and there's no answer to when that happens right? it's somewhere in between too soon and too late that's not helpful i do sometimes like to see these see the hindrances as mara as uh, you know this demonic figure i think it's helpful as a as a depersonalization technique like okay yeah this is mara Right? And it's not, um, you know, it's this push-pull dance again, a little bit like last night, with on the one hand, can I be with it? And on the other hand, can I see, like, this is really, this is actually getting in the way. This is not, this is not um, helpful uh, to, to this particular unfolding process. So just briefly on each of the, each of the five hindrances, right? so sense, desire, you know, the entire world runs on Vedana. Um, one of my, Vedana is that, that uh, basic feeling tone of positive, negative, or neutral. And we want the positive, we don't want the negative, and we don't notice the neutral. I remember when Lee uh, was teaching dependent origination on one retreat, he's going through and he gets to Vedana and he's like, you know, yeah, you get the sense contact, and then comes the Vedana. I want some more of that Vedana. And uh, I had an experience on that retreat. I went, I went to the food line or something, and there was some kind of dessert there, cookies or whatever. And I was like, oh, look, Vedana. <laughs> I'm going to get some of that Vedana. And it is true, right? We go along, you know, we spend a lot of time looking for positive Vedana. It got to the point where actually I started using it in ways Lee never intended, you know. So anytime there'd be something I wanted, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to get some of that Vedana. I'm going to get in that hot tub. I'm going to, you know, and then, you know, the pleasant feeling arises. And, you know, Vedana. And that's really true. And I think it's easy to find the mundane examples of, you know, the food at the food line, but it's also possible that there's a sense desire for high, quote unquote, high sensory, rarefied sensory experiences, whether it's jhana or anything else. Um, I want to have, I'll have what she's having, right? That's, that's a bit of sense desire. And as you see, right, that, that happens in the moment of meditation. It can be a very subtle movement of mind and then everything goes, you know, kind of falls to pieces. So there's, right, so the, we've gotten to some nice access concentration. There it is. Great. Oh, there's some PT. Oh, yeah. Gone, right? That little was the bit of sense desire coming in and doing what it does as a hindrance. So it's like the practices of getting mellowed out enough that the joy arises and yet there's not sense desire that's kind of immediately jumping up, jumping up and down. So this is the, the following is the weirdest uh, advice for working with sense desire that I've ever heard. And it comes from Ayakima, so sort of whose tradition we're, we're following here. So she said, um, the, the, she, she imagines the voice, sense desire being a voice that's chattering. Once you do this, do that, do that, do this, do this. And she said, it will only stop talking when the meditative experience results in far greater pleasure than the sensual experience can provide. Namely, the happiness and tranquility that can result from concentration. 
I think I'll read that again because that's really strange. And I've never heard a teacher say that before. The sense desire will only stop talking when the meditative experience results in far greater pleasure than the sensual experience can provide, namely the happiness and tranquility that can result from concentration. In other words, the jhanic pleasure, which is wholesome and which is self-generated and which comes from concentration, ends up being so much better than whatever sense pleasure, you know, regular sense pleasure, bodily sense pleasure, or whatever that we're looking for, that we just only want that. I'm still struck by how strange that advice is. Right, so I just finished saying how there can be desire for the jhanic pleasure itself, which trips us up. But I have actually experienced that a little bit, you know, only on retreat. Um, but on retreat, yeah, I mean, sometimes the jhanic pleasure, happy, that, that happiness, just blows these other kinds of happiness out of the water. And that's actually, a, if that's true, if I mean, if, if that's true, it really does actually shift, I think, a little bit about how we understand what the Buddha and the Sangha and his original Sangha were doing. It's like they have a big secret. Like they're not necessarily, I think a lot of us, certainly I have encountered a lot of spiritual practices about don't have pleasure, like give up on pleasure because there's something more sublime, you know, enlightenment or whatever. Um, but what if they actually have the secret to a better pleasure? Well, that got my greed personality getting really interested in that because I definitely want to have that. If I've missed out on the greatest pleasure there is, I, I'm not going to miss out on that, right? I'm going to go for it. Anyway, that was kind of an interesting thing for for Ayakima, you know, ordained as a nun, and, and uh, not that that should be the motivation of practice, right, clearly, but that when sense desire comes up, it's like, oh yeah, but there's another, there's a better happiness over here. Um, I always thought, yeah, so it's like there's a, you know, you could ruin your appetite by having a little snack before the meal, but there's a really good meal coming up. That's not what you usually hear from most teachers in terms of working with sense desire in the context of a meditation retreat. But I think it's worth thinking about. It's a really interesting, you know, I think maybe not so worth thinking about in the beginning of a jhana retreat where, you know, we're still working it out and, and there might be too much desire for that particular happiness. But as you develop these tools in the toolkit, right, and as the, so, you know, jhana's, not, I don't think the center of anyone's, uh, shouldn't be necessarily the central main thing that is the f total focus point of the meditative path. But it's an incredibly valuable tool. And one of the benefits of having that tool around is, yeah, there's a certain access to a kind of wholesome, internally generated happiness. Um, and that's really interesting uh, to hear her say that. You know, there's traditional antidotes, of course, for sense desire. You know, you see the bad effects of sense desire. You moderate how much you're eating. And, you you know, there's even, of course, if you're uh, having kind of sexual desire, you think of the body parts, right? That's my That's got to be my least favorite Dharma teaching ever. Just, you know, well, think of that person in the charnel ground or think of the their organs and so on and so forth. Least favorite, but I guess it works. Um, but I, I think the one I want to focus on of the traditional antidotes is actually noble friends and noble conversation. Um, comes up a little on retreat, not the conversation part, but just being in a sangha. But just the notion, it's, it is interesting to think like, to think of the role of the conversations that we have and the media that we consume and garbage in, garbage out. And that that was understood as being, you know, one of the traditional antidotes to each of these, to most, not all of them, to, to most of the hindrances. Um, you know, sense desire can also, as I indicated, be a, an entry point, 
not sense desire, but sense experience, can be an entry point to uh, the jhana by creating the conditions for gladness to arise. But you know, the real point of the practice is, is to have that kind of happiness not depend on external conditions. So you can't always have the beautiful snowfall or the beautiful flower or the beautiful experience externally. Um, and so it's kind of, yeah, it's a little cheating to you know, use a prompt to generate a lot of happiness. But if it happens spontaneously and you're suddenly feeling a whole bunch of uh, happiness or, or joy arise, by all means, right? That's, feel free to you know, stay, take that as object, see what happens in the mind, see if it comes and goes. So it's not the sense desire, but the sense experience can be actually a gateway to, uh, to the, the practice that we're doing. So our anger and ill will, you know, that's the other part that makes the world go around, um, is, is that desire that humans have to actually feel more angry. Sometimes it's fun to watch TV and just spot which hindrance is being, you know, advertised. Or, so it's like, well, I'm watching my anger, ill will drama, but then it keeps getting interrupted with these commercials for sense desire. <laughs> and, and really, the, the commercials are all catering to my certain restlessness and worry. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of fun to do that. Um, and again, on retreat, we can see this internally as well. I, I think it's, it's the trivial ill will that comes up is easy to see, but also the real, the real stuff that comes up, ill will towards oneself. Yeah, or towards people in your life, or toward experiences, or toward mind states. Um, and that, I think, is more um, profound than, you know, the trivial ill will that we have. So, you know, okay, there's some annoying thing, and I hear a sound, and now I, I can notice the ill will that arises, and it passes, and that's fine. Um, but I think when the, when the more deeply ingrained patterns of ill will arise, um, it's, it's a more profound uh, situation. Um, you know, here, there, again, the antidotes, the traditional antidotes are a little surprising. Uh, one of the traditional antidotes is uh, metta, right? Uh, so cultivating metta inside. And again, it's not, it's not, the, um, it's not that metta is a band-aid for the ill will. So, you know, somebody annoyed me, and so, oh, I'm going to do a bunch of metta for them, and that'll somehow equal it out. Right? It's, that's not the idea, right? It's that there's ill will present in me, and so creating more metta, just that's actually, that balances it out internally. So it's not about, you know, my magic thoughts about someone else. Um, interestingly, the other traditional antidote is one's own piti. Right? Happiness, rapture, the rapture kind of happiness. Uh, Lee, incidentally, I haven't used this translation. Lee likes to translate piti as glee. Right? Glee, that sort of buoyant... Right, and that, that's helpful to distinguish it from sukha, which is more of a contented happiness. Um, I don't really, yeah, glee is not a word I use a lot except for the TV show, so it, it's kind of a funny translation for me, but that's a helpful, right? So one's own glee, one's own piti, um, has a way of decreasing the, the ill will. And that's, I think, actually pretty realistic, right? So you're, you know, you're feeling a lot of ill will, but then piti arises and you've forgotten all about that. What was I angry about? We see that in daily life as well. Yeah, so there again, as with, um, you know, so a lot of the a lot of the antidotes to the um, the hindrances are themselves uh, actually factors of the jhana. So that's the first one of them, PT. So, you know, there's an interesting um, the, the the star of sloth and torpor, Tina and Meda, in the in the uh, suttas is Mogalana, who's a very advanced practitioner. 
Um, and the Buddha gives Moggallana like 25 different antidotes for sleepiness, um, all of which seem kind of sadistic to me. Um, you know, I think, but it's 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 helpful to think about that we're not that we're not just thinking about the physical causes of sleepiness, um, but it's also this directionlessness or lack of energy or lack of focus, just being low energy in our practice or in our lives, for that matter. Um, here again, as with sense desire, sometimes being right on the edge of sloth and torpor can actually help us get concentrated, right? So if you're, you know, the sleepiness is arising, but you're aware of it. So, all right, it's there, you know, but the, the mind is also very calm in that moment because it wants to fall asleep. So if you're aware of it, sometimes you can kind of surf right in through that calm into a really nice concentrated space. So the hindrance can also be a way forward. Um, here the traditional antidote is vitaka, thinking, investigation, vitaka vichara, right? Uh, for, this is easier in mindfulness than in concentration because in mindfulness, right, more investigation, so feeling those 10 sensations on the out-breath and so on, uh, that wakes up the mind because you have so much to do. It's like doing a complicated crossword puzzle. Um, it's also fine to apply an antidote for sleepiness like going for a walk, right? But uh, it's interesting that here again, a, a jhanic factor, vitaka, is given as the traditional, one of the traditional antidotes. I've, I've often thought for restlessness and worry, um, here again, for me, I think of all of the hindrances and their release, this is the one I experience the most, as the most pleasure around. All right, so remember from before, there the hindrance is present. When the hindrance is abandoned, joy arises. Um, that's true for other hindrances too, as I think about it, but restlessness and worry is the most easily accessible for me. So there's a lot of just can't sit and this kind of stuff. And then at some point it leaves, either because of an antidote or just because I've waited it out. And there I can actually feel the joy very, very quickly. I go, oh, great. Access concentration. All right, there it is. Um, and I often feel like uh, in some of the, uh, many of the interviews I've mentioned, you know, taking the mental quality of that gladness, pamoja, that joy, taking that in as the object. So if there's monkey mind, you know, going everywhere, grabbing lots of things, you know, here's all this stuff and thoughts and it's going, you know, and then for whatever reason it, it diminishes, just f taking that relief or as kind of an object, you might discover that gladness just as it's in the sutta. Um, so that I actually noticed that quite a lot. Um, you know, a lot of times I think we think about boredom as having, a, you know, we're, when we're bored, it's because there's not enough to keep us stimulated. In my experience, when I've looked at it, actually boredom is a kind of restlessness. Um, one time when I was doing walking meditation on a retreat, I, um, I was in a nice kind of concentrated state, sort of access concentration. Everything was really sweet and light, a nice samadhi state that we get on retreat. And I got to the end of the, you know, where I was walking, so I'm in front of the wall, and I was literally watching paint dry. And it was already dry. The paint had, was dry. And I was looking at it, and it was so interesting, and, you know, because I was concentrated, and I was just, you know, getting a little carried away, not doing very good practice, actually. But staring at it, I was like, so gorgeous. Like, oh, my God, this is so beautiful. And then I did start laughing at myself that I was literally watching paint dry that was already dry, but I was totally captivated by it. Right? So it's not the lack of um, the lack of stimulation that leads to boredom. It's actually, in a certain way, overstimulation. Like, the mind is just trying to find something to play with. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's about that relaxing out of it. You know, the traditional 
antidote here again, jhanic factors, tranquility, concentration, contentment, right? building up uh, tranquility, uh, pasadi, and bringing up samadhi, and uh, that contentment, that contented happiness, let's say, of the third jhana. Um, you know, the traditional antidote is actually is also is bliss, sukha. Um, so just, you know, just that sukha can come from anywhere to get out of the restlessness loop. And then it's interesting to make that the object. So I'm stuck in a restlessness loop. Maybe I'll just take an exhale. And there's just a little brief moment of respite in the exhale. Um, and then that, can, that moment of respite can be a source of pomoja, of gladness, and of sukha that, that arises out. So noticing the pattern here with the hindrances that there are many ways to work with hindrances, but I'm focused on the ones that have that relate to the kinds of practices that we're doing this week. So finally, skeptical doubt. Um, here, I, I think it's it's helpful. You know, the traditional antidotes put it all on me. <laughs> the traditional antidotes for doubt are getting clear instructions and having the example of the teacher, <laughs> which is good. Um, but I think also also investigation of one's own one's own phenomena. But I think there, um, there's a real difference between you know in the beginning of retreat, starting out jhana, getting in there a little bit shaky, maybe not, maybe so. But over time, you know, as we know that that the faith in the in the Buddhist usage is less about faith in the unknown or in the unseen, but confidence in in what you've seen to be true, trusting your own deepest experience. To use Sharon's phrase. Um, I don't know if it, whether John is the deepest experience or just a nice deep one. As you get to know them, that skeptical doubt as to this really kind of goes. And you just have to find out. And for me as a Westerner, you know, when skeptical doubt is getting in the way of investigation, I can see it really clearly as a hindrance because it's stupid. Because, you know, it's not being smart, it's being dumb. I mean, the way to find out you know what's out there is to investigate and to explore not and you can't you can't explore when you're not exploring <laughs> when the doubt's telling you there's nothing there to explore um, you know doubt that comes along afterwards that causes us to second guess ourselves I think that would be pretty helpful actually in the world if we had a little more of that that kind of doubt uh, someone makes a claim or you know forwards a fake news site page or something a little doubt would be a really good for the world but this is the kind of skeptical doubt that's actually not um, that kind of doubt leads to more investigation, and this kind of doubt leads to less investigation. Um, and so there is a little bit of, uh, there is a little bit, if it's not quite trust, then at least recognizing that seemingly non-crazy people seem to report certain outcomes. Let's see if that's true for me. You know, uh, seemingly reliable people have talked about the outcomes of this or that practice, including jhana practice. Um, let's see if that's true. Not taking it on faith that that is true, but uh, overcoming the skeptical doubt so that one can do the investigation to see if it's true in your experience as well and what's similar and what's different. Um, so there again, it, it, to me, there's a, a real confidence that comes from um, having had even if it's just an experience, right? So I don't think experiences, well, it's not I don't think. Experiences don't liberate, right? They don't permanently, they don't liberate. But they can really help with skeptical doubt in particular. 
and, and we see that in our own more general Dharma practices in those, in those blessed moments where the practice is there when we really need it, when we're in a difficult situation or when we're hurt ourselves and, uh, and it works. So that's when it really counts. Uh, but here as well, you know, there's a confidence that comes from that, from that practice. So the question of confidence brings me to the, the last thing I wanted to kind of talk about tonight, um, which is this play between uh, confidence and surrender. So sometimes working with hindrances, as I've said, there's a, you know, the best first line, I think, is to, is to just be with them to the extent that's possible. And that takes, you know, there takes a little bit of, of viria, of effort, energy. You gotta, you know, you're not getting tight around the hindrance, but just sitting quietly while a wave of anger rolls over you takes a certain kind of courage to just kind of be there and show up. Um, and yet there's also a time for a certain kind of surrender uh, where we're saying, yeah, you know what, I've done, I've worked with this and now it's time for the antidote. Now it's time for me to, to, to let go of this notion that I can just sit with it. Um, and for me, the, uh, there's a really beautiful illustration of that in the uh, awakening stories of uh, the Buddha on the one hand and Ananda, his cousin and faithful servant, on the other. Um, the Buddhas we're probably pretty familiar with, um, right? So the whole thing, the watches of the night, going through the jhanas, using the supernatural powers uh, to remember past lives. I was really very happy to hear that so many of you have already developed the supernatural powers. I'm just kidding. Um, we'll talk about those tomorrow night. Um, going through the different watches of the night, you know, and then the final kind of, I think it's such a, it's so interesting to me, I think, that the final obstacle, the final doubt, the last, tra the last trick of Mara is to say, you don't deserve this. You know, who do you think you are? I just think that's such a powerful, uh, that's such a powerful last challenge. And there's a lot of talk sometimes about different cultures relating differently to concepts of self-esteem and unworthiness, and that's true. We do all, you know, we do understand those things differently in different cultures. But it's remarkable that this very different culture, different time and place, still had that as kind of the last thing to drop, right? I mean, for heaven's sakes, the the Buddha's just sat there and done these miracles of, you know, recollection and discovered a whole path to, you know, path of purification, path of liberation. And yet, even at the end, there's like the last challenge is, you don't, yeah, you don't, you're not gonna, you don't deserve this. And so we know that, you know, it's a different posture. <laughs> it's not the, you know, but we know the famous posture where the Buddha sort of points at the earth and says, you know, the earth is my witness. You know, I do have enough meritorious conduct. I have done the work. I have actually, yeah, I can. And it's this really affirming moment of yes, right? It's this moment of, of a real, it's a really beautiful moment, I think. Like, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't. No, yeah, I can, I can. And that's that moment of liberation, actually seeing that the last thing to fall is this sense of I cannot, um, meaning, it's the last thing to fall, right? That that actually stays with us, you know, until the, that very, the culmination of, of the path. And yet if we compare that awakening story with that of Ananda, um, we actually see the opposite in the case of Ananda. So 
some of you know that you know after the after the Buddha died, uh, Ananda was not an arahant at that time. Um, it was kind of a depending on who you ask, it was almost there, three quarters of the way there, but not fully awakened, not fully liberated. And um, after the Buddha's death, there was a council of our, the arahants to get together and and sort out you know, the Buddha's teachings. And this was the beginning of the hundreds of years of codification into what's now the Pali Canon. So all of the living arahants, there were 500 living arahants were, were gonna come. And the way the sutta puts it is, and in addition, Ananda was going to come, the only one who was a non-arahant. Uh, because Ananda knew most of the discourses of the Buddha and was indispensable to the council. But a, a kind of dispute brought, you know, came up. Actually, Ananda's own brother said, this isn't going to fly. You need to be an arahant to, to attend Lee's jhana retreat. You, 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 know, you haven't fulfilled the prerequisites. You better you know, either become an arahant or even though you're the best repository of all of these teachings, you know, you're the, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to be here. So we need you here. So you better do it. No pressure. And the suttas relate that Ananda put in all kinds of diligent effort, initial effort, sustaining effort, continuing effort, all the different kinds of effort. But one of the accounts actually says that it just wasn't happening. It just was not, it was not happening. And it was uh, Ananda actually getting up from sitting, and he was switching to lying down to go to sleep. Uh, and he was surrendering. And at that moment, in the change in postures, there was a sudden recognition of deep recognition of impermanence, and Ananda became fully awakened. And so, if the Buddha's awakening story is one of yes, Ananda's actually is a kind of no yes. It's a sort of profound, this is okay. This is not, it's not going to be, and it's going to be this. It's a yes, it's a different yes. A yes to who Ananda is, rather than to who all of his, his brother and the other 500 arahants were saying he needed to be. And I think those two images of the Buddha pointing at the ground and Ananda lying back uh, are both really powerful, and it's powerful that they're both there. Uh, there's sometimes there's the yes, and sometimes there's the relinquishment of the yes. Sometimes there's the courage to sit there with the hindrances and to face, you know, face what's coming up. And sometimes there's the relinquishment of that courage and of saying, oh, yeah, I, mm -hmm, no, yeah, no, that's, mm -hmm. So that might be as mundane as an antidote to a hindrance, or it might be uh, something really, you know, much more profound. There's another part of the story that... Um, sometimes doesn't get told. So as it happens, uh, the Buddha, Moggallana, Sariputta, and a favored king who had been really um, benevolent to the Sangha all died within one year. And there's a poem, there are a bunch of poems by, ascribed to, you know, ascribed to various figures in the, in, uh, the suttas, various arhants and others. Um, and, and one of them is ascribed to Ananda. And uh, a really long one, actually, many, many verses. And one of his verses is really, there's several that are about his grief. You know, after the death of his two longtime companions and his, the Buddha's also his companion his, and his teacher. So, you know, he'd lost the three people probably closest to him in his life within a year. 
and he lost the protection of this king. And one of the verses is, um, this is in Ananda's voice, the old ones now have passed away. The new ones do not please me much. Today alone I meditate, like a bird gone to its nest. The old ones have passed away, as friends, and a very frank thing for the the, the text to say he doesn't he's not fond, he's not fond of the new generation of the new generation of students probably half of those 500 arhants you know these are probably all of them are younger than ananda who would have been quite old you know according to the the the, the timing of when this happens and so there's that real sense of, it's not just a his his lying down isn't just a relinquishment of this particular expectation but it's, I think, a deep honoring of his own grief right, as well. And that, I think, is where some of the best insights for me from Mahayana in particular intersect with some of the best insights from Theravada, right? When we, you know, we look at all these hindrances, there's a real, sometimes there can be a real dualism that arises. Ill will, bad, metta, good. Um, Whereas, you know, as the practice deepens, we know that actually with it, we're, we're, feel, we're feeling what we're feeling. And this is what's arising. And can I be present with this in the way that the Satipatthana Sutta has it? There's also that story, famous Zen story, of an enlightened master whose son has been killed in battle. And uh, he's told of the news, and, he, and all of his followers gather around to see how he's going to respond, and he cries. And they say, Master, why are you crying? Because, you know, meaning you're so enlightened. Uh, and he said, because I'm sad. And I just thought, yeah, this is, this is what's happening. And, fi and finally, that notion of viveka, which we started with, seclusion. Today alone I meditate, like a bird gone to its nest. What a lovely image of the kind of viveka, the kind of seclusion that's not only a physical seclusion, uh, but one where we can seclude the mind as well, uh, like a bird gone to its nest. So let's take our usual 10 minutes, and we'll come back at 8.50, and I'll ring a bell at the last minute for metta. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.